Mark chapter 8, 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And then he said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we listen to the news. We listen to social media. We listen to our friends, our family, we listen to our hearts and our own minds. And we pray for this brief time here, that we would listen to you, that we would truly hear your words, that we would truly see who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, hopefully you recall uh, several weeks back, I closed with with a, a, a scene from Superman where... We were connecting seeing something versus really, truly seeing. 
And I had made the connection that Lois Lane was sitting in her office there in the news station and she has the newspaper with Superman on the front cover and she's looking at her boyfriend, Clark Kent. She pulls out a Sharpie pen and begins to scribble on the newspaper a picture of some glasses and a news reporter hat. And then all of a sudden, these two men, Clark Kent and Superman, In her mind, they become one person. And she says, it's you. It's you. And to prove it, to prove it, she says, I know what I will do. Anytime someone's in need of a rescue, Superman just immediately shows up. So she decides she's going to dash out the window of the tall building. And she, unaware of what happens, she doesn't realize that Superman runs down below and sets out this awning, (coughs) excuse me, so that Jesus ends up bouncing on the, or not Jesus. Wow, I'm getting ahead of myself. So that Superman has set up the awning so that Lois Lane will bounce on the awning and land on the food cart. And at, at this moment, um, she, she then says, well, maybe it, it was, maybe it, it was just my mind. Maybe I was just thinking up something. But I didn't tell you about the second time she went to prove that Clark Kent is Superman. And in this last time, she says to him, she says, I made a mistake that first time. And, and Clark says, whoa, 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 hold on. I don't know what kind of funny ideas you have, but remember how that one last one ended. She says, you know what? The last time I put my own life at risk, this time I'm going to put your life at risk. And she pulls out a revolver. And at that point, Clark Kent is saying, whoa, 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 hold on. And before he can really say anything else, bang, she shoots him. And at that point, what are you expecting? Well, you know, something, maybe he's going to drop dead, but of course not. Instead, he, in a very serious moment, he pulls off his glasses and he looks at her and he says, now, Lois, you realize if you were wrong, what would have just happened to your boyfriend, Clark Kent, don't you? And she says, I knew it. I knew it was you. I knew it all along. And then he says, you realize I would have been dead? She says, I loaded the gun with blanks. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> but, but it becomes clear. It becomes so clear. She proved it through her trickery. Both Clark Kent and Superman are one in the same. She was confident she was seeing two images, one with Clark Kent, this guy who's a bit nerdy, a bit weird, a bit, you know, soft, kind, loving, yes, but also combined with this other man who is, as it is said, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. He is the man of steel, Superman. The two are one. And yet here this morning for the disciples, they will only see the one side of Jesus. And they will remain blind to what Jesus is explaining to them about the fullness, the full picture of who Christ is. Now, to set the stage this morning, I want to highlight a few broad issues for us. Mainly because in our Bibles at this moment, in the book of Mark, we are turning a page. We are now entering the second half of the book of Mark. And at the same moment, we're not only entering the second half, it's the second act out of three acts in the book of Mark. The first act is where Jesus is primarily up in the north in Galilee. As There's been sometimes he's been in certain Gentile regions, but it's primarily in the north land. The second act 
we will see the repeated phrase, even as it opens up this morning, on the road, on the way, on the path. It's this idea that now they're headed south. This second act has Jesus going from the north with his disciples to the third and final act where Jesus will be entering into Jerusalem. And that, when he enters in the third and final act, is where he will complete his mission, his purpose, the very reason he left heaven to come to earth. Further, I want to highlight as we turn this corner into this second act that we will face some serious repetition. I have to admit here and confess, I was very tempted. I was tempted to write one sermon and then re-preach that same sermon four times and see if any of you noticed because there is so much repetition going on. I am sure that there would be a few of you each Sunday that would say, Pastor, that was all new insight. This was great. Um, This is just how it is. Well, we will see repetition of several key pieces. The necessity of the cross and resurrection. We're also going to see Jesus' identity raised again and again. And then we'll see this reoccurring theme of who is the greatest. Who's going to be the best? Who's at the very top? To which Jesus will continuously bring up, hey, here's the children, the family, and issues that surround things like wealth. And the repetition has a function because if you read straight through chapters 8, 9, and 10, you're going to see this building tension. This is how the book of Mark works. Other gospels work differently, but the book of Mark begins with this small picture of Jesus and it slowly, slowly grows so that everything becomes clearer and clearer by the very end. And so with the repetition, there'll be various additions that give us pause for thought. Now, Mark, recall, has the cross in view from almost every scene of this book. He is quickly and sharply and compactly telling the story of the cross. So that scene by scene, you almost could turn in your Bible and just say, where's the cross? And it would be right there in view. And that's what we had with this morning's passage. Who is Jesus and what is his future? And then we're going to also see as we conclude, discipleship is a matter of listening and belief. So first, who is Jesus and what is his future? The question seems to be on everyone's mind. Who is this? And now we will see that it's not just on their minds. It becomes very boldly on their lips. In fact, at this point, even Jesus himself will raise the question. Who do people say I am? Now recall earlier uh, in chapter 6, we read that even King Herod Antipas was raising that question. And the speculation was, is this John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead? Is he Elijah? Uh, Perhaps he's one of the prophets of old. And here the 12 disciples, they repeat, these are the rumors about you, Jesus, on the street. Now, if you go to our streets, if you just were to go out here, go to Thriftway and do a quick poll. You will find that on our streets, when you ask people, who who is this Jesus? About 50% will say, Jesus, he wasn't God, but he was a great teacher. To which we have to ask, how do you know that Jesus is a great teacher? Well, friend, in order to know that Jesus is a great teacher, you do need to read what Jesus said. And if you read what Jesus said, and you do not believe that Jesus is God, you cannot maintain the claim that he is a great anything. We have to really, really be honest with ourselves here at this moment. If Jesus is not who we see in this book, who he says he is, he is then cruel, deceptive, and I would argue before you, honestly, he would be evil. 
Why? Because for a man to declare the kinds of things that Jesus says about himself and then require of all of his followers the things that he's asking of us, and then if you turned out to only be a hoax, friends, then yes, he would be deceptive and and evil. He would not be a great teacher then, as the 50% might declare. But here we consider the words of scripture. We see Peter piping up and you have to understand this is not Peter who all of a sudden has this down in mind. This is Peter standing representative for the 12. He's the spokesperson, if you will, and saying, this is what we've come and concluded. This is what we believe about you. You are the Christ. Because here Jesus has said, who do people say I am? And now he's saying, 12, who do you say I am? They say, Jesus, you are the Christ. James Edwards notes here, he says, at some point, the colleagues of Jesus and everyone who heard his name must look deep within Jesus and deep within themselves and risk a decision that will entail either a commitment to or a severance from the identity and mission of Jesus. For the moment, Peter here stands committed Saying for the 12, you are the Christ. 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 Literally, the anointed one. The Mashiach, or Messiah, from Hebrew. Now, when the Messiah, word Messiah, was translated into Greek, it was translated as Christos, or what we say in our common tongue, Christ. Um, And this Mashiach, this anointed one, recall This anointing was used in the case of many key offices in the Old Testament. So if you were a priest before going into service as a priest, you would be anointed. Um, Many of the prophets uh, were anointed. Before you speak on behalf of God, you are anointed. Um, The kings as well, before they stood in their kingdom to rule and reign, they were anointed. And here we have these three major offices of anointing all falling on one man. Because here in Peter is rightly and boldly correct when he says, on behalf of the apostles, you, Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus, in you, we have the great high priest. Jesus, in you, we have the one who is a prophet sent from God to speak the very words of God as God. Jesus, you are the king of kings. And so, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. All of these things have finally come and landed on Jesus. And I think for this morning, friends, there is a way of reading this passage as if Peter and the apostles are a bit like Lois Lane. They, they finally put these things together. Aha, we see it. You are the Christ. And, and they're finally seeing the full picture. Peter's declaration, you might say, proves it. You're not just a prophet, not just a miracle worker. You're the Christ. But friends, the details... Show us, at least at this point, the disciples don't quite yet have the full picture down. They're only seeing half the story. In verses 34 in chapter 8 and following, Jesus makes it clear. I am the anointed king. I was born king, the Christ. I was born, but born to die. I was born to go to the cross. And my disciples who follow me? They will go to the cross too. And Peter and the disciples here, they only have half the portrait. Uh, The half they have is key and important, but Jesus now sketches in and fills in this second half. In fact, we could say the rest of the book of Mark, as we turn this page at this point, the rest of the book of Mark, 
Well, it's trying to flesh out this idea that, yes, the Christ, yes, the ruling reigner, reigner, the one who is king of kings, lord of lords, is the same one who must suffer many things and die. This is why when Jesus says here, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again, Peter's not having it. Notice if Jesus had said, hey guys, I just want you to know, I think there's a good chance this doesn't go down well. I'm here for peace. I'm here to work it out. I'm here to rule and reign as the king. But just so you know, there's going to be some trials ahead. I think they would have said, Lord, we're with you. We'll fight along whatever, whatever it has. Whatever comes, we'll, we'll deal with it. We'll work it out. But when Jesus says very emphatically, I must go suffer, the response is, heck no. To which Jesus replies, heaven yes. And here, we find this interesting word that Jesus used to rebuke the demons in earlier chapters is the same word that Mark uses when Peter rebukes Jesus. The pressure, the pressure for Jesus to avoid the cross is strong. The very idea of Jesus falling to the temptation of avoiding the cross is a temptation that is rooted in the work of Satan. That all of humanity would die in their sin and remain separated from their creator forever and ever. So much so that even Peter's rebuke equates him with who? With, with Satan. And this is why the son of man must suffer many things and be killed. Now friend, if you're with us this morning and in and, and your mind it's a bit fuzzy about exactly why is it that Christians believe that Jesus had to die? I want you to know that this morning Christians do not rejoice. We don't take pleasure in this idea about a man dying. We don't think that blood is this amazing thing we want to grab a hold of. We don't think sacrifice in and of itself is something that makes us happy. For Christians... We rejoice in the cross for a completely different reason. We have come to understand that through the scriptures, that we are guilty against rebelling against a holy God. We have come to see that no human effort could make amends with our creator. And we've also come to realize that just as it was patterned in the Old Testament, that there must be life of blood for sin. And being that our sin and our rebellion and unbelief has brought God to death. We believe that through his death, we needed his life. And we needed a holy sacrifice to stand in the gap for us. And that is why we believe Jesus came. It's why he was willing to give up his life for us. And that the avenue, the way to receive this grace from God is by believing and trusting in Jesus and the gospel. And if this is new to you, I would love for you to speak with me. We are then given here this this kingdom insight that to be a disciple of Christ is to live in paradox. To live in a paradox. If you want to gain life, then be willing to lose it. If you want to cling to your life that you have right now, to keep it, well then you will end up, friend, with no life at all. If anyone would come after me, that is, follow in Jesus' path, be his disciple. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, this does not mean self-abasement. 
It doesn't mean that we have as Christians some sort of martyrdom complex. It doesn't mean that we purposely, like some of the monks, go and, and deprive ourselves or give ourselves intense pain or, or remove ourselves from society. But rather it means the disciples so love Christ and the gospel and others that they will lose the self-reliant, self-salvation project of idolatry and loyalty to one's self. It means for us, our new identity is in Christ. It's what enables us to find the real identity that God has created us to be. As we care for others more than for ourselves, as we aim to please God more than our flesh. The life we are to lose then is the life that circles around pleasing ourselves. But the life that you and I gain by this is a life that is pleasing to God. And therefore, I would submit it is ultimately a life that is pleasing to us. It also, as we will see, is a life that in its end is just its beginning. In other words, this life, this life, friend, with its struggles, with its sin, with its frustrations, they all give way to the eternal life of joy, purpose, holiness with Christ on a new heaven and a new earth. So a question for you. Uh, Do you come to Christ with your agenda of what he will do for you? The disciples all wanted a rescue, but primarily a rescue from the Romans. Here, this Christ, he will bring them a rescue, but from something greater, their sin. Here, they're they're wanting help with the political realm, and Christ has come to deal primarily with the spiritual realm. Do you have a view of Christ that says, okay, God, I want you in my life as long as you're here to rescue me from my current issues, my finances, my career, my struggling relationships, A view of Jesus that says, I'm down with Jesus so long as he has come to fix my immediate problems. Friend, I'm not saying that Jesus cannot deal with your immediate problems. Um, But there's a pervasive American pragmatism which inoculates us against the good news of Jesus. Because we want a Christ. We want to, to be like Peter, to find the Savior and yell out, you are the Christ. So long as that Christ has come to deal with our agenda. Well, then we are here given by Mark this complimentary picture of Christ. It is though Mark wants us to see with increasing clarity, Jesus, the son of man, the one who will suffer. But with this view of him, and we want to keep in mind very much, he wants us not to forget Jesus, the son of God, the one of glory and transcendence, the one who, even as Jesus mentioned, will rise three days later to full glory. So we get paired right up against Jesus talking about his violent death. We get the transfiguration, which is where we turn to now. Now in backpacking and in hiking, there's a constant saying, what goes down must come up. And and, and this is meant as a bad thing. Because if you go down, 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 you're thinking, oh boy, I'm going to have to turn right around and come up, up, up. But here, friends, the picture of Christ going down, down, down is a good thing. It means the one who goes down must go up, and he will. He will go up, up, up. So that we have pictured in the going down the foretaste of him going up, exalted, transfigured, unveiled. This functions, I think, here in a twofold way where we see Jesus going up onto this mountain and changed in appearance before these two disciples. 
I think first this is hearkening back to the last scene that we saw God the Father speaking down from heaven about Jesus in which he says, this is my beloved son. We get this here in the transfiguration, but don't forget it was back there at Jesus's baptism. I think this reminds us at the very intro of Jesus's ministry and entering into his public ministry. But also I think there's a hearkening forward, a very light foreshadowing here. Jesus is clothed in pure, bright white. The very next time you'll read of someone who is bright, white, clothed, will be at the very end of Mark in chapter 16, where you find an angel standing there over the tomb and is transfigured uh, before them. And he announces Jesus really has been transfigured. He is now in full resurrected glory, never to be subjected to suffering again. Meanwhile, here in this moment, this transfiguration, this scene is rich with implications for us and meaning. Picture for a moment, you, you're on the road with Jesus. You're walking along. And then he says to you, hey, um, I want you to come up here. And you're thinking about all the things you know of Christ. You're thinking about, you've been with Jesus. You've heard some of his puzzling teaching. You've witnessed things that left you thinking, wait a sec, did I just see him actually do that? I, 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 I can't believe how this man actually walks. And now he talks and what he does. There was a man who couldn't see, but now he sees. There was a little girl who was dead, dead, dead. And now she's alive. Everything that Jesus has been doing has been bringing you joy and shaking you from everything that you've known previously. And you're traveling here with this Jesus and has left you enlightened at times confused. But one thing that you and your compadres have come to believe is that this Jesus is the predicted one to come and save God's people. And so when you hear him at this point saying he must die, it becomes fuzzy. You'd wonder, is this Jesus really the Messiah? But then he says, hold on. Come up on this mountain with me. And suddenly, miraculously, Jesus is changed before their eyes, transformed. Pictured not just in flesh, not just man, but here for a moment in glory. Clothes looking brilliantly white, which communicates what to us? Here in Jesus, this one who has no sin, perfectly holy, not a stain of filth in him at all. Perfection, grace, and truth. And then we see pictured here with him both Moses and Elijah. These men from the Old Testament era to which people connect Moses typically with the law, Elijah with the, with the prophets. And I, w- I would say this could be, uh, this could be, it would certainly stand right in line with what I preached last Sunday about the entire Old Testament standing to point forward to Jesus. And here, Moses representing the law, Elijah perhaps the prophets, they're both standing, not just from their scriptures in the Old Testament, but literally standing with Jesus, pointing at him saying, you were the purpose that we declared what we declared. I think that that's, that, that, that's probably part of what's going on. But I think there's another piece here that's even more basic. Two men went up on the mountain in the Old Testament, the same mountain. They went up to the mountain and they met with God up on a mountain. The two men in the Old Testament who met with God up on a mountain, Moses and Elijah. Both of them, they met up there with God and spoke to him. And so, funny, here this man walks up a mountain And all of a sudden, he's having a conversation with two men who up on a mountain had a conversation with God, who happened to be there in the same place at the same moment and same time. So when we look at Jesus, the one who is to suffer, the one who is to die, 
who must suffer. All of a sudden, it comes to our mind, this is not just a man. This is God who's meeting again with two men on a mountain in a moment which God will then speak. But before we get there, Moses and Elijah, they're talking with Jesus. And I have asked myself, what were they talking about? What was the conversation like? Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Maybe they had come down from heaven to say, uh, Lord, we kind of miss you up in heaven. It's been about 30 some years now. We're a bit lonely up there. How long do you think you're going to keep this thing going on? Probably not. But I imagine maybe they were saying something like, Lord, are you really going to go through with this? Are you really going to do this? Are you going to really obey the Father and indeed be the ultimate sacrifice? Lord, all of heaven up here, we're holding our breath, watching this. We're holding our breath until your last breath. It astounds us that you are coming to do this, to die for these rebels. Whatever they were saying, Peter at this point interrupts them. Classic Peter. Hey, I have an idea. Let's just set up shop right here. I have an idea. Let's build some big tents. I don't know. We can set them up on a permanent structure up here on the mountain. I'm thinking, I don't know, maybe one for Moses and, and maybe one for Elijah. How about Jesus? We build a big, bigger one right here for you in the middle. I think this will be wonderful. I mean, it's, it's almost as if he had no idea really what's going on here or even what to say, which is why we read in verse six, he said this, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. They were afraid in this moment, which is why we read in verses seven and eight, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came down out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw no longer anyone with them, but Jesus only. Friends, these words, this is my son. We've heard earlier, but this listen to him. We've also heard earlier. This harkens us all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses is told back in Deuteronomy 18. Now listen to this and listen for a particular mountain that's in view here. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord, your God, at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire uh, any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, there are, there are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, meaning Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. In other words, Moses was told a long time ago, in reference to a particular mountain that he was up on top of, that there was coming one who would be like Moses and God would put his words in his mouth and it was to him that everyone else should listen. Listen to him. And God interrupts here up on this mountain with Moses on the mount saying, here he is. This is the one. The Moses-like prophet. The one who is to be anointed. The one who is truly anointed. The Messiah. Listen to him. Don't argue with him. Don't fight against him. Don't talk over him. Don't change his words. Let him speak and speak actually into your life. To be a disciple is to hear the master speak 
and respond by following what he said. So let him speak to you by putting aside dedicated time each week to read his words, to listen to him, to hear him speak to you. He is speaking actually to you. These are not just words on a page meant for somebody elsewhere. These are words meant for you, friend. Some of you say, I want to hear Jesus. I really want to listen to him. I want to see Jesus. I want Jesus, the man who died, but sometimes I struggle to envision him as the resurrected Lord in power who will one day transfigure me too. Not just spiritually, but physically raise me up anew. I struggle to believe this. So what does Mark have then for you? I think he has help for your unbelief here in this moment. Would you look at verses 14 through 29 with me? And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they're greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has, he, has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, <laughs> all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together and he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him up by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could he not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Did you catch it? The disciples, they go at this evil spirit with brute authority. They perhaps were thinking, well, we've been doing this over here and over there, and we've done it again and again. We know how to do this. We'll just roll up and just, boom, command this evil spirit to come out. And perhaps and there's a, a sense in which Jesus allows this demon not to come out via those means because he wants to remind the disciples you, you, it's not just your trickery it's not your authority it's not just by hocus pocus it's a constant relying upon me and while this man admits i don't have the authority and i don't even have the faith so he pleads with jesus and jesus says that great probing line all things are possible for the one who believes Immediately, the father of child cried out and said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Friends, right here, I think we have pictured the posture of a disciple to say, I have faith. I do trust you. But, oh, Lord, not to the depths that I long to, not in the way that I fully know I could. Help my unbelief. 
And the disciples even pulled Jesus aside and they're asking, why could we not get the job done? And well, Jesus responds, you need me. And what is prayer? Prayer, friends, is faith being displayed because you're admitting you need the Lord. Prayer is relying upon God, the heart that says, if I rely on me to fix this, it's not going to happen. I'm, or maybe I'll, it'll sort of happen, but I'll mess it up. Jesus, I need your help. Because disciples of Christ, they overcome opposition primarily by this thing called faith. As men and women, our tendency is to battle, isn't it? Using man-based methods to think through how many of our issues do you tackle with, with human means? Something's broken. I grab the toolbox. A kid acts out. I say, get it together. A car breaks down. Pull out the checkbook. An illness comes over us and phone call later, we call the doctor and we get a prescription. We're lost on the road. We grab out our phones. We map our way out of it. But friends, our deepest issues and battles will never be solved by a toolbox, by our authority, by our bank accounts, by our doctors, nor by our phones. They are resolved by faith, a reliance ultimately on God who can do something. How do we as Christians, this side of eternity, rely on God? How do, we, how do we show that? How do we do that? We pray. We come before him and we admit we don't really have the resources. Or we admit we do have human resources, but we need God to go before us, proving he really is who he says he is. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? He is the Christ, the radiant, holy God, who can make in an instant his entire form and appearance changed before us. He can be transfigured. But make no mistake about it, friends. He's also the suffering servant who was transfigured to become a man, but also he was transfigured to become a lamb. A lamb led to the slaughter. He's also the God and man who showed us the model of repeating what he has done as we lay down our lives for others. Jesus is the one that if we have ears to hear him, We will, as the Father in the heaven shouts down to us, we will listen to him so that we will trust him. We will believe him. We will have faith in him. And where our faith and your faith and your prayers are weak, we cry out, Lord, help my unbelief. Friend, hear Jesus this morning. That's the thrust here. Hear him when he says to you, hear him when he says these words, pick up your cross. Be willing to quit living for yourself and live for him. Hear him when he says this morning, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hear him when he says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Hear him when he says to you, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Hear the words from his mouth. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Hear him this morning when he says, so also you have sorrow now, but you will, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one, no one friend will take your joy from you. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word out of your gospel. Father, we ask that you would give us the gift of faith, that with the eyes of faith, that we can believe you are who you say you are and that you've done what you say you will do and that we will get the full radiant picture 
of Jesus truly man and Jesus truly God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.